Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When I was two years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a generation witch. I was laying there, practically, and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes were rolling back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this place. One of my first questions I asked was, God, is there evidence? It is hardcore physical evidence, not delusionary. Indeed. Indeed. We can say that about the whole show. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Uh, It's only been like a little less than a week uh, that we were were here last. um, And we had Rocky Succi on last time. That that whole thing got real deep and real political real quick. Yeah. Yep. It, uh, way over my head. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on. Well, we do not uh, have Luke here tonight. We are Luke less because he's home playing with his new computer. So he says, and uh, uh, who, who knows? I guess he was too frightened to get out here in the snow. But that, that uh, should I be some new to come uh, out here. Should be some new bumper music then. Yeah, it might. We might get some new bumper music. Some maybe like maybe new theme song with some yeah. new guest voices. <laughs> that would be that would be pretty awesome. Well, it's uh, snowing outside here in Nashville, and uh, I'm sure that people are wrecking all over the place. <laughs> was it horrible for you to get home today, Rob? No, I thought it was going to take forever, but it really wasn't that bad. 
Yeah, it's it's not. It's just it's it's just like a little bit of like snow outside today. Like we we had our massive three foot snowstorm the other day, so <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. But uh, tonight, we guys, we have on uh, Walter Bosley, and he's come back for his uh, third time on Conspiracy Normal. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about his new book, Origin, the 19th century origin of the breakaway civilization. And this is a topic that uh, I've kind of come interested in lately. I've really, I want to kind of talk about it more in the outro, but uh, until recently I've kind of not taken that whole idea serious about a whole breakaway civilization or a secret space program. But now I'm kind of finding some researchers that have been talking about it and uh, it seems like there might be something to it, although I don't know if there's colonies on Mars or anything like that, but it could be a little more low level. What do you think, Rob? Uh, I'm completely unfamiliar with the topic. Today. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what do you mean by breakaway civilizations? Well, it, it, breakaway civilizations would be this idea that you have a group of people that either finds or develops a certain technology that would allow them to get off the planet or be on the planet, but maybe be somewhere else. And they have no, they really don't want to interact with or interfere with the mainstream civilization or as we think of it. Hmm. So that's the whole idea of this idea of the secret space hmm. program. Uh, like we were talking with captain K and that i i don't really know what to think about that i don't yeah i don't see any evidence that suggests that we've had the technology up until now right i i could entertain the thought that there's um organizations out there that are plotting this for the future for sure yeah um you know leave the masses behind and let's start our little utopia because we're the rich elite kind of thing elsewhere but sure then again all the resources are here so they probably ship us off somewhere else and stay here. Yeah. I mean, one of the big things in UFO lore, there's this idea, there's this theory that some of the spacecraft that you might be seeing or some of the UFOs that people are seeing are actually things that are made by humans. Um, and there's this idea that you have a breakaway civilization that that is flying these things around and just kind of ignoring the rest of us. That's interesting. So that's 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 kind of the idea. I, that's kind of the idea there. And so like Richard Dolan, I believe, uh, be a great person to get on the show if he's listening. Uh, <laughs> now he he's he kind of I think he kind of coined the term. Maybe him and Joseph Farrell, who are. Uh, guest tonight is good friends with i think i think both of them kind of turned coined this term breakaway civilization uh in other words that this civilization would be out there and they would be flying these craft and they're not really worried about what's going on with us necessarily so there's more of a it's just I, i think it's a i think it's a way of explaining it other than just it's all extraterrestrials or it's all aliens right this is great i've never heard of this yeah. I'm really excited now. Yeah. And, and there's also, we're going to talk to Walter about the airship mystery, which um, generally is 1897 airship mystery 
is generally seen as like the beginning of UFOs of this, uh, like a kind of a precursor to flying saucers or unidentified objects in the sky. And apparently these were these massive airships that were seen in 1896, 1897 by several people in the Western States of the United States. And apparently one crashed in, um, somewhere outside of Dallas in like 1897 and there was an occupant that was badly burned. Apparently he was buried there. And so, so you have a school of thought that thinks, okay, well that was just, those were, those were aliens. And then people just kind of interpreted it later on as later on interpreted their craft as flying saucers or cigar shaped objects, this idea. But there's also another school of thought that says that this was actually human invention. It's just that we didn't know about it because it was a, it was a secret program that was going on, and then uh, eventually these people broke off and formed their own kind of group, their own civilization, if you want to say that. And then there's a lot of things that go on with with the uh, the Nazis and uh, whether the whether the Nazi apparatus survived World War II and whether they they had uh, they had this technology, their own technology as well. So that that's another element of it there. So just, I think it's just another like I said it's another way to explain it other than that it's extraterrestrial. Right. And well, for me as somebody that believes that a lot of the alien abduction and the contact experience that we that is more of an internal thing than it is external, then I would I would maybe look at the breakaway civilization and say okay there might be something to that because maybe this is just two separate phenomenon you're seeing Maybe two separate phenomena that might feed off of each other, but you're actually, but people are seeing our space, our, our craft, actual craft, physical craft, right. but they're either this breakaway civilization or their own, or our own civilization's te- uh, technology, secret technology. And then you have the alien contact experience, which might be separate from, from that. Right. And that's kind of, that's, that's about kind of parallel with what I believe too, is that not that it's, um, some breakaway civilization since I've never even, yeah, come across that theory, but I, I I do think that it's it's most likely um at least ninety percent of it military because if you look at the pattern of UFO sightings and how they were described, they tend to predate um crafts that were then available explained away you yeah. know ten or fifteen years later like oh yeah we had these back then and that's you know a lot like what people were seeing and right right. The alien well, abduction side of it, I can't explain. I have no <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we've explored that a lot on on the show. Um, like I said, I, I think a lot of it is more internal than it is external. Mm-hmm. I think it's more internal to us, even though there are physical uh, aspects to the phenomenon. Um, so it, to me, I, it, there's also the possibility that you might have uh, a mind control program that's going on as well. And that that's that that's part of the alien abduction mythos mm-hmm. or the myth or the lore. Uh, but I had something that I wanted to play because we were talking to Soraya Ascath a couple shows ago, and we were talking about the Satanist stuff, and we were talking about how Satanists have been causing all kinds of problems. And look, I'm gonna set this up real <laughs> quick while you while you pull pull it up here the 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 audio clip, but. Uh, these in in Phoenix, apparently you can Phoenix, Arizona. Apparently you can go the, the before every city council meeting, and they will have a prayer, right? 
and a Satanist group from Tucson called the Satanic Templars or something like that uh, were al- allowed to come in. They were going to be allowed to come in and give an invocation at the beginning of this uh, of the city council meeting. Well, this got pulled down apparently by city council. So if you want to play that for us, for us, Rob. A controversial vote tonight in Phoenix. The city council will not allow a satanic prayer at an upcoming meeting. Instead, there will be a moment of silent prayer. Joe Dana from our sister station in Phoenix was there for tonight's heated debate. It's a story that's new at 10. Look, every city council member here tonight expressed their disagreement with Satanism, but they say they had a dilemma rewrite prayer practices to prevent a Satanist from praying here on the 17th while also making the city vulnerable to a lawsuit or take away public prayers altogether and avoid lawsuits. Preventing a Satanist's prayer, a reason to celebrate for some members of mainstream religions. It's a victory on our city. But for others, the vote, a defeat. That's what this whole thing is about, really. Political correctness. And you know what? Trying to take God out of everything. It was an all or nothing approach. In the end, the council voting for nothing, led by Mayor Greg Stanton. Not even two years ago, the justices on the Supreme Court, including the conservative justices Roberts and Alito, stated clearly what the Constitution demands of cities like ours, that when it comes to prayer, we can't discriminate against minority or unpopular faith. Beginning tomorrow, no prayers will be allowed to open city council meetings. Instead, moments of silent prayer only. Council members relying largely on advice from the city's attorney. Councilman Sal DeCicio, the most vocal opponent of the measure. Because I want to give you hope. I want you to walk out of here knowing that this is not going to stop tonight if we lose this vote. But several council members had harsh words towards DeCicio, who suggested that supporting a moment of silence was to advocate for Satanists. And when my colleagues attack us and my faith, that's very personal. That was Joe Dana reporting. The councilwoman who sponsored the moment of silent prayer rule said she didn't want the city paying out a half million dollars in legal fees and lawsuits when there are more important issues to deal with. (laughs) I need a little bell there whenever stuff like that comes up. Cash register noise. It's like the No Agenda podcast. They just give you a little (laughs) ding, ding. Uh, Yeah. So, basically, instead of having the Satanists come in and give their invocation, the city council, after much debate, I must add, ruled... <laughs> and much, much legal advice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, much debate. Like, you could actually go online, you can go on YouTube, and you can watch all three hours of this, like, deliberations, and I watched a little bit of it today, and... A lot of it was just you know, what you heard at the very end there. I mean, just like we we can't let God be be trampled by the Satanists and all this kind of stuff. And so anyway, rather than being letting the Satanists give them and give their invocation, they just said, well, no, we're just not going to have prayers at all. So we're just going to have like a moment of silence in, in the uh, – so it makes me think that – what was this? The, was that what the Satanists were trying to do? Was that they were trying to prove? I think so. And well, personally, that's what I got out of the whole story was that, yeah. all right, I have no problem with Christianity or Christians or anyone or any what beliefs provided that, you know, you're not a destructive 
individual and you're, you know, contributing to, to progress in our society and the human race. Sure. But if Christians aren't going to stand up for, for the rights and the things that our country was founded on and the Satanists are, I have no choice but to side with the Satanists, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like it's, I don't know. (laughs) I, I mean, instead of letting them come in and give, and I, and I actually saw an interview with these Satanists instead of letting them come in and give like, maybe it's like, I don't know, a minute, two minutes, instead of like actually letting them come in and give this invocation, they just said, no, no more. We're not going to do any prayers at all. So this was a way to just, you know, it was CYA cover your ass. Mm-hmm. We either we're not going to do it. And we we won't let anybody pray then. Well, that's fine. Either everyone yeah. should be allowed to or no one should be allowed to. There shouldn't be a gray area. Like there should not be right. a, in any kind of government um, meeting. There should not be a, okay, this religion is allowed to express its beliefs one and none others are. One religion should be fav- favored right. over the other. Even if they happen to be Satanists. Yeah. So it was pretty obvious, though, where it, where it was where it came from. I mean, just the idea to just kind of shut them down. Well, and that's that's where everything the Satanists do comes yeah. from. Yeah, it really is, and it's it's. I think it's an important part of balance. We had this. Uh, we we had the whole thing. We talked about this with Soraya. You know, we the where they were the statues. They wanted to put the statues up in Oklahoma, and they wanted to have uh, they. They've, they've done all kinds of things like the coloring book that they wanted to have in, in, right. in schools, you know, and just all this kind of silliness. And it, but it, it's almost like, it's almost to me, these Satanists, and we're talking about these Levian Satanists, right. right? People that are basically atheists, but they use Satanism as a kind of Satan as a symbol of man's rationality or the power of man or whatever it is that they say. You know, they, they're just kind of like internet trolls, really. Yeah. Well, even their names, calling themselves Satanists, that's a marketing ploy. Yeah. You know, it's, they don't worship Satan. They just, you're, they're going to constantly have attention because they're called Satanists. Right. Exactly. And, and yeah, they, but they are like, they, they are out there for some good purposes. You know, they, there really does need to be a checks and balances system. There does need to be, you know, things need to be kept kind of some things need to have, have an eye on them and not let yeah. them grow out of, you know, out of control. And well, what do you think would have happened if they had let them do this invocation? I mean, do you think that they, that it probably then you would get this accusation from the other side that would say that the Phoenix City Council is supporting the Satanists, even though we've let the Christian groups come in and pray all these other city council meetings, and we're going to let the Satanists come in in just one city council meeting and pray. You know, it, it, it is it is in a way showing favoritism to a certain to a certain group. Right. Well, yeah, they put them in a tight spot. For sure. Yep. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I mean the whole separation of church and state. I mean it's a it's a dicey issue. It really is. Yeah, but I don't think it should be. I mean it's very important, and I'm okay with anyone yeah. believing what they believe. But there's a very good reason that we 
founded this country with the separation of church and state and the freedom of religion. Right. Well, it, until it gets to the, okay, well, this kid can't silently pray in school kind yeah. of crap like that. I don't agree with, but right. Cause that's, again, that's a personal thing. And if it's a personal thing, then that's totally great. Yeah, and and it's and it's not up to the the Phoenix City Council as a government entity to endorse any particular religion, right? And so, yeah, have a moment of silence. I mean, that's a nice little uh, neutral way of doing it. But it, when you have when you have prayers, you are endorse you you essentially are endorsing a religion because you, every because it gets hard because everybody in the group. Everybody in the group is a, is a Christian. Everybody that's there might be Christian, 80%, let's say. That's the number. And so, yeah, everybody's going to get together in that group and they're going to want to pray in that group, but they forget that there are that they are a government entity. Right. You see what I'm, what I'm saying? What I'm saying there? Yeah, and I and I do, but Yeah, that gets a little tricky. But why why can't you say your prayer on the drive there? You know, or yeah, are you saying pray say your prayer silently to yourself while you're while you're while you're there? Right. And well, in the time the time that's allowed, and that for that, uh, it, you know, one of the things that I heard uh so much when I watched some of this stuff today was people getting up there and they were saying stuff like, "Well, we took prayer out of schools, and then that's what." That's why we have so many problems today. That's why these kids are so unruly now, and because we because we took prayer out of schools, and that just that argument just it goes nowhere with me. Mm-mm. Just Mm-mm. goes nowhere. We have so many social issues in this country, so many that just like if you just like like no, how mm. about the how about the uh, how about parents how about single parent families. How about that? You know, how about drug use? How, how about all these societal and economic pressures on people? And but no, if we just put prayer back in the schools. How, mean, how about children sorry, being raised by absurd. tablets and televisions? And yeah, I mean, I, I, I have two kids and I've met a lot of their friends and I've met a lot of their friends' parents and I can tell you where a lot of the problems lie. And it's, it's right there. It's with parents not being interactive. It's with children yeah. being babysat by TVs. It's with, you know, it's they they <laughs> has nothing to do with praying in school. Yeah, that that whole attitude is almost like a desperation. It's almost well, and like, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like we, you're 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 being dropped into a pool, and you're you're trying to find you can't swim, and you're trying to find you're trying to find something to grab onto, and you grab onto that because it makes you feel good, it makes you feel secure, and it's but you but you're not looking at the at the wider issue. Right. And that's, that's one of my main problems with religion in general. You know, I have my own religion. I have my own beliefs and my own whatever. And, you know, I don't want to be one of those new agey, like, Oh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual people. But (laughs) there, there's something to that, you know, like I, I think religion for a lot of people, it gives them a, a shortcut to thinking and it's an easy scapegoat for a lot of things. And, you know, it shouldn't be used that way. We should all be trying to just figure out what's going on. And if that's what religion is, then I'm totally cool with it. But if it's, if it's something to fall back on so that you don't have to analyze a situation or so you don't have to take any, you know, accountability or so you don't have to 
try to become a better person, then I'm not okay with it. Because, man, I'd love it if it was that simple. Mm-hmm. I'd love it if, like, you know, I mean, I mean I'm being a little facetious here, but if it was that simple, it'd be great. But it's not. And, and another issue about this was, was that I bet, I'm going to bet you, and I have no facts to corroborate this, but I'll bet you that that was probably one of the most attended city council meetings in Phoenix history because of this issue. If they were debating the the amount of homeless on the street or the public housing <laughs> or Section 8 vouchers or anything else like that, it would just be tumbleweeds rolling through. Right. You know? So – it's like that's what that's what gets people all up in arms, but maybe trying to improve the community, maybe that issue might be something that you might want to attend the city council meeting for. I don't I don't know. Just I, <laughs> it's like there's there's so many other things that we can do. There's so many other avenues that we can take than just this one issue. You know, it's like it's like our state government here in Tennessee they will bring up the religion stuff just to have something to talk about. Mm -hmm. And it was like, they had this whole, uh, was it gay marriage, uh, thing where, where the Tennessee was, they were trying to pass it and that the gay marriage wasn't going to be allowed in Tennessee. And it failed in the, in, in the, our Tennessee legislature. And people were, you know, our legislatures were getting up on, getting on the floor and crying and, sobbing and wailing and gnashing of teeth and just like you know my god can we bring some industry to the state people can we do something good for people when we can we can we help people out that maybe don't have health insurance and that's what this state and that's what i'm saying if we spend all of our time squabbling about things that you should be on a personal path trying to discover for yourself then we're never going to focus on anything that's really going on a lot of it's just demagoguery too Mm mm-hmm a lot of it's just like you you appeal to get votes because you're gonna you want to make sure evolution's not being taught in schools. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it in in some ways it's almost embarrassing, and this is coming from somebody that's a Christian. Okay, and another thing I want to point out before we stop here and go to the guest is that they're you know the city of Phoenix. You know, they're in a city that's named after a uh, confirmed occult symbol. Just would like to point that out for the <laughs> record. All right. So let's go to uh, let's go to Walter Bosley. And we're going to be talking about his new book, Origin. We'll be right back on Conspiranormal. We're back, guys. Conspiranormal. Even though for you, it was just a instant in time. But for us, it was at least, what, five, six minutes? It's magic. <laughs> Now the line we have we're turning for the third time officially. I guess you could maybe say fourth time since he was on our one hundredth episode. Uh Mr. Walter Bosley. Uh welcome back, Walter. Hey guys. Thanks for having me back again. It's always good to be here. Absolutely. It's always good to talk to you. Uh I want to talk about your book, Origin, the uh nineteenth century origin of the breakaway civilization. That Rob and I were talking a little bit about in the intro. But uh, uh, before we get into that, I, I want to talk a little bit about 
uh, some of the developments that have gone on in San Bernardino where you're at with the, uh, with the shooting or the investigation or what's kind of the latest that's go- gone on there? Because, you know, that's fallen off the radar now. You don't really hear about it except for in Republican debates. Well, um, because really nothing has happened. Um, you know, anything that the Bureau is doing investigation-wise is going to be kept, uh, you know, uh, classified. Yeah. So, you know, if whatever's going on, we, the public, and of course there's been no other incident. So, um, you know, it was just that day, thank goodness. Um, you know, they were eliminated and they certainly intended to cause a lot more mayhem and they uh, were stopped short, which is always a good thing. And, you know, it's no great loss to the world that those two are no longer with us. Um, so, yeah, things kind of got quiet. Um, about the only thing is when it does pop up being mentioned in the news among the, uh, the terrorist attacks going on around the world, it's kind of surreal almost to hear San Bernardino mentioned with uh, Paris, France um, in the same sentence. Yeah, I mean, something similar happened in my hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, last summer when uh, the guy killed the people in the Naval Center. Yeah, and uh, yeah. you'll hear Chattanooga mentioned sometimes about that. Uh, I don't think it was quite as many people, but uh, you know, there was this whole thing back when it happened that there was a third accomplice. Uh, has anything? transpired about that have there been any rumors that you might have heard or anything that that people have said no nothing at all and as i said you know the uh the investigation is going to be you know a tight lid have a tight lid and and be classified so you know if there is anything going on we're not hearing about it publicly um so i assume that they're just doing their thing and and fortunately you know nothing else has happened you know, one thing I do want to ask you about is, you know, you, you hear about the Sandy Hook stuff and you'll hear about how people will say how Sandy Hook was just like a, was made up or it was a, a false flag or even just like a drill that went live kind of aspect to it. And they'll talk about whether like the lack of anybody had any funerals or stuff like that. Have you seen like the announcements in the paper so that you can say, you know, since you live there, that this event actually happened, there actually were bodies, people actually died, and they actually were buried. Well, yeah, because I know someone personally who um, was close friends with one of the victims. Okay. Uh, the guy that lived up in the mountains, uh, you know, and uh, uh, yeah, this, this really happened. These are real people who got killed and... Um, you know, left families behind, and, and as I've stated before, this this is, uh, but I haven't really talked about it a lot, and I haven't talked about it with you guys, um, you know, it was not a false flag event. It was yeah. you know, um, the real deal, and whatever we could say was behind the people who did it, they really did it, and they weren't, you know, government actors. Now, you know, I still, I still recall in the fog of all this, you know, and it wasn't very foggy, it was pretty clear. I remember a video that was shown during the stuff going on showing more than two people running into the building dressed in black. And 
We never saw that video again. Haven't heard any more about that. That, of course, remains a very curious thing. And of course, I, you know, I've said that I think that if there was a third or fourth, that it's very possible that they got that third and they turned him and, you know, however they did it, um, and that probably helped them with the eventual outcome and whatever they're doing now. Um, but, uh, uh, it, you know, I, it was not a false flag. And, right. Yeah, there just there there were several points people brought up, and in a couple of places, when I was asked to, I pointed out why um, those were in error, those points as arguments for a false flag, and and what they really meant as far as how things are really done. But um, of course, since I'm not part of this, you know, the cabal of the conspiracy, I couldn't possibly know the plan. So you know, I'm an idiot and don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Well, I just, I just kind of wanted to like clarify that because you do hear that as I'm sure you're aware in conspiracy circles, you'll, especially about Sandy Hook, you'll hear about, well, where were the funerals? Where were the dead bodies? You know, just you hear that kind of stuff and you see that kind of stuff on Facebook and conspiracy websites. So just, just like for the record, you know, that you know, someone that, knew someone that died and you know you're there in that community so you can vouch for that you know i would tell you the person i know's name the victim was the uh i think his name was mike was the individual named wetzel last name of wetzel and i know someone who um is a writer okay um and a published author and they're they were family friends with this guy and his family so you know, there's there's a verifier, you know, right there, just one. So, right, yeah, right, yeah. It, it's 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 it seems so tragic what happened over there, and just like such a such an awful thing. Uh, it, it you know, I think people, I think it's good to ask questions, but at the same time, we need to be sensitive. People need to be sensitive to, <laughs> you know, what what occurred. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, let's not forget that these idiots exist. These idiots who want, you know, and I'm sorry, anybody who is so insistent upon the whole world going to their church is a dangerous idiot, in (laughs) in my opinion. Um, I don't care what religion you are. When you cross that line where you truly believe that the whole world needs to convert to your particular brand of faith, you have issues. And, um... You know, you've crossed the line into, you know, are you dangerous now? Um, To what degree are you dangerous now? I'm not, I don't want anyone to go out there and say, oh, Walter Bosley says anybody who believes the whole world should be their religion is a fanatical terrorist. No, that's not what I said. What I said is when you've crossed that line to strongly believing that everybody should convert to the point where you're willing to force that issue and do the thing that these, uh, these Muslim idiots do, um, you're a problem because, yeah. you know, um, sorry, but the whole world's not going to go to the same church. And, you know, thank God, you know, for those of us who, who, you know, don't think everybody should follow the same religion. There's some folks that, you know, they have no need for religion. Um, and, uh, you know, these two people, like the people that inspired them, uh, you know, um, no great loss when they get eliminated. Yeah. So, I, anyway. I agree. 
Yeah, let's get let's get on let's get in on the book here. Uh, this I think this is book. Uh, you're you're almost getting as prolific as Nick Redfern here. So <laughs> I, I'll tell you, I've been uh, I've been working hard these last. Uh, my gosh, what is it? Eighteen months. Yeah. Uh, in a year and a half, a little over a year and a half, I've done one, two, what four nonfiction books and with three pulp novels thrown in there. Wow! Wow. It, let's let's talk about origin and mm-hmm. this this idea of the breakaway civilization and, and first i kind of like you to kind of de- define the term breakaway civilization and then how you kind of got into studying this aspect well um Okay, what was the first part of your question again? <laughs> How, uh, the, 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 the term breakaway civilization, what that means, the people oh, that may not be familiar that, with that's it. That's recognized as being coined by Richard Dolan, um, who came up with, you know, uh, um, uh, putting the concept into a frameable label. Um, in, and naturally, I don't have that definition sitting right in front of me, but I believe it's in the book. Um, but basically it's when uh, an organization with the um, resources that can exist independently of, you know, the rest of us, meaning can exist independently of our uh, uh, commercial market structure of um, our, you know, an economy, um, independent of any of our known governmental structures, um, and can just be self-sufficient in itself in all those ways and decides consciously to go that path um, is essentially a breakaway civilization. And it's kind of there in the definition itself. They are their own um, culture or civilization and they break away from the rest of us. And how I got into it really was through my Empire of the Wheel books with the at a place discovery, I call it. And um, this background knowledge and familiarity with the whole mystery surrounding the Sonora Aero Club and, and the NIMSA, which I had learned about in, you know, the works of Dennis Crenshaw and Mike Busby and Theo Pymans um, and, and those guys. And in pursuit and of the answers in Empire of the Wheel 2 um, regarding, you know, what was going on in the general sense, how was it that Edda Place could have been involved in all this, and the other things, the mystery with the Frank Rosasco that's talked about in more than one of my books, Origin included. Um, it all began to kind of emerge that, well, heck, it looks like not only is it a a, a hidden organization, but it, it's an organization that is big enough and self-sufficient enough and possessed of enough uh, resources that it's looking like one of these breakaway civilizations. And it just kind of made a lot of sense to me when I looked at these things from that perspective. In fact, it made more sense than the popular um, uh, notion of you know, um, like an ET extraterrestrial origin for some of these things that were going on or, you know, um, uh, military industrial complex post-World War II. 
And that's kind of a distinction that, um, in, in effect, I don't think he did it consciously, but I think in effect, Dolan's, um, uh, definition, uh, actually applies to that, that World War II, post-World War II military industrial complex, um, uh, milieu. Right. Primarily, you know, as I looked deeper, I saw that actually, um, it started a lot, a lot earlier than that. And it, it makes sense that it would start earlier than that if the technology was so much more advanced or just a little more advanced than our own. And kind of where I want to start is this is interesting and, and this is more applies to, I think, in, uh, Empire of the Will three, the nameless ones, but you take that concept of the nameless ones and you kind of apply that to the, to the ancient, to the breakaway civilization. In other words, that the breakaway civilization in a way was looking at older texts and applying some technology that might have come from an ancient civilization. Right. That's, that's the way it appears to me. Um, you know, as a result of my research, uh, it, it, it just seemed to the, the evidence that I present and argue, um, seems to support that idea to me that, that these guys, you know, started in the mid 19th, well, they emerged in the mid 19th century with the, the Sonora Aero Club and then later on, but uh, it just made sense to me that what they were doing was taking advantage of knowledge of a lost technology. And we kind of talked about this with uh, when we had you on about secret missions one and two was this mm-hmm. idea that you had uh, places like the Royal Society in England and that they were that they basically that's what they were doing as they were looking for secretly looking for this technology of a, of a lost civilization. And we kind of right. talked about the Excalibur sword or relationship to possibly Orme and, and to, to this kind of thing. And, and and you see that as kind of even, that's kind of a precursor to the, and we're going to talk about the two groups that you see as, as making the breakaway civilization in a bit, but you see that as kind of like the precursor to those two groups in a way. Yeah, um, you know, any of these secret societies that, whose goal it was, was to retrieve this lost technology and kind of, um, uh, rebuild it, so to speak. Um, these are the kinds of guys from which in the German version of this, the Prussian version, we see a group like NIMSA emerge. Um, of course, NIMSA wasn't the only one, um, you know, with those roots. But I think NIMSA was the first one to be so bold with developing the technology that it's suspected that they did. So uh, you might say that NIMSA, it could be argued that the Prussian NIMSA of the 19th century, um, you know, beat the other ones to it as far as, you know, what they were able to pursue and develop. And, you know, the other ones, you know, worked it worked at catching up certainly the the american group which i've kind of dubbed the 1903 by the end of origin those who've read origin will will know what that what that means what that refers to um they would have among their ranks you know guys very much you know of the same mind that that were aware of these uh, lost technologies were interested in this kind of thing and you know pursued it uh, from you know, the American theater 
you might say. Well, let's talk about NIMSA first of all. Mm-hmm. And this is something we didn't really get into in the first couple of shows. Uh, first of all, what <laughs> and I think this is I think it has several layers of meaning. But what does uh, what does NIMSA stand for? Or rather, what is it thought to have stood for, and what do you think it actually stands for? And and, and who were they? Who, how did they come about? Well, um, and I'm looking for the page in the book where I spell it out because it's easier for me to right. uh, remember it that way, uh, or or to recite it. But here, here's what we have: we have, in fact, do you guys have the book handy? I have it on my Kindle on my phone. Yeah. One of you find the page number for me where I spell out the definition of NIMSA. Let me know, and I'll go to it in mind and do that while I'm answering the first part of this question, if you don't mind. Um, uh, you have the multiple levels, as I say in the book. What you have is um, whoever going stringing way back in history had been under the influence of the hidden ones, the nameless ones. Now, let's say that this was the original cabal that would become the Prussian Nimza that I write about, okay? And this would be your group of guys, just like I described, you know, what the Royal Society um, was doing in the Burton book, and just a group of guys, like-minded, um, looking to mine ancient history and ancient uh, information for this, this lost technology of these forgotten civilizations, and they used they used the concept of the nameless one, the hidden identity, the mask, the nimsa, as I go into in the book with Sesheri's analysis. They use that concept to mask themselves, to remain unknown, shrouded, and such. Okay. And then when it came time for them to emerge just a little, these guys would have been the ones that were behind the Prussian men who established the NIMSA that's associated with the Sonora Aero Club and Delschau and the 1800s airship mysteries, okay? So you've got that, that, and how far it goes back, who can say? I mean, they probably had been around for a long time, um, like some of the other, you know, secret societies, uh, or, you know, rumored, you know, to have been around a while. But it would have been that shadowy, um, nameless group, just kind of a uh, uh, an alliance, as it were, of like-minded guys um, working in in the dark, um, in secrecy, that would have created this Prussian Nimza, and being the kind of guys they are, they would have been behind the selection of an actual organizational name that would reflect this NIMSA concept. So I argue, what, what I'm trying to argue here is that they were using the concept of the NIMSA, the nameless one, and for all it was worth, um, literal or figurative, and they said, we want to come up with the name for our organization and we want it to be um, uh, a, a homonym, is that the word, when it's two words that sound alike? Right. Yeah. Um, and we want it to be that of the concept, the NIMSA. But the acronym word, you know, that we're coming up with must, of course, make logical sense regarding what this new Prussian outfit organization is going to be doing and what they're all about. 
So yes, I argue that it was done on purpose that they indeed um, decided upon a name where the organization would be called NIMSA, uh, NIMSA pronounced such. Okay, and, I, I found, um, I found, I actually did find it. Uh, where what you, page is it on? Uh, well, page is, be, uh, uh, you have the Kindle version? No, no, I got the printed version in front of me. <laughs> okay. Oh, oh, I got it right here. I went yeah, right to it. It's on 132 of the printed version. Yeah, okay, I'll like, say it. All right. What it is, is, and this is the German, and pardon my pronunciation, German listeners, but nationalistisch Jagdflugzeug Maschinen Zahlungsamt. Now, I'm sure our friend Stephen in Germany is laughing right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and what I think this means is the Nationalist Pursuit Exploration Airship Program Office. I know that sounds like a mouthful. Yeah. But, um, it sounds better I, in German, actually. What? It sounds better in German, actually. Yeah. Um, and I go into what that means and why um, I believe in Empire of the Wheel, too. And, you know, a little bit in uh, in origin. So you can find that there in those books. We won't spend a lot of time going over that again. Well, I think it's better but, than New York Motor Zephyr Association, which is what it, other people have thought it was, right? Yeah, that's what they thought it was. But they were yeah. uh, unfortunately, they were wrong because the the source we have of NIMSA is Charles Delshell, okay? For NIMSA as the organization associated with these airships, okay? And Delshell says... Uh, clearly, in no uncertain terms, it was a German-based organization. Period. Let's talk about Delshaw because yeah. this is an interesting story all in of itself. He kind of go over how where these these strange drawings that Delshaw did, and then just the equally strange way that this stuff was actually found. Yes, it was found um, when. Uh, I can't remember the family's name, but it was there in Texas. And um, the, I guess I think somebody died. They were moving out of the family home. And these books, these uh, albums of all these uh, paintings and um, diary of Charles Delshall, who lived from um, uh, 1830 or 1840 uh, to 1923, ended up in, in the garbage at the dump. And a man who owned a junk shop, a man named Fred Washington, he found them, and he salvaged them from the trash. And another guy, uh, P.G. Navarro, Pete Navarro, in I think around 1971, he was at Washington's uh, shop and uh, saw the drawings. And I think there were even some college kids. I think that's what it was. Some college kids went to Washington and said they wanted some stuff to display in a in a history exhibit at their college um, regarding you know the history of human flight. And Navarro might have I think seen that exhibit or saw it in the paper. But he went to Washington's shop to see these things, and he bought a few of them um, off of uh, Fred Washington, and he started digging into. The, the mystery of the Sonora Aero Club. And he made a little bit of headway. Um, he, he came to suspect that this was not just... Um, a lot of people like to write off Del Shaw as an outsider artist. Right. It's kind of like when archaeologists don't understand the function of a mysterious ancient building, right? They say, oh, it's a religious temple. 
You know, yeah. some, anything they can't explain was religion. Um, it's the same thing with, you know, Del Shao. They can't really explain him. Um, they don't want to go where the evidence points, so they just say, well, he was just an artist. It's all his imagination. Um, well, Navarro was finding that it wasn't just all his imagination. And here's an interesting thing. Um, in the middle of Navarro, now this is in the mid-70s, in the middle of Navarro digging this out, the um, he finds out that the Dimeno Foundation bought several of the books of Del Shao's art. Now, the Dimeno Foundation, those of you familiar with the JFK conspiracy milieu, will recognize the Dimeno uh, family among uh, the players mentioned in the um, the JFK assassination lore. Okay. Um, specifically, I think the Torbit document, the gemstone file. Uh, okay. Um, okay. So you got to ask yourself, this is interesting. The the Dallas Demenos find Del Shells are interesting enough to buy several of the books. And, um, you know, Texas, when you look at the history of the airship mystery, Texas is one of the major places that this stuff was being seen. Um, there was even an airship landing at Stevensville, which you remember, what, about 10, 15 years ago or so, I think. Yeah, was, 2007. You know, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, golly, what's going on in Texas? And here you have, you know, the Demental Foundation in the middle of all this. So do they think he's just an outsider artist or what do they know that, you know, Pete Navarro and the rest of us don't know? And um, then, uh, you know, other researchers had looked into it. Dennis Crenshaw wrote his book, Secrets of Del Shao. Um, Theo Pimans um, talked about Ninza and, and Del Shao in his book on Keeley. An excellent book, by the way. And uh, then, of course, Michael Busby, who's done probably the, the best single book on the 1897 airship movie of all of them out there, a thorough investigation of this. And what, what you find is that there's a little bit more to it between um, when you look at the 1890s airship mystery, it begins to flesh out what Del Shaw was talking about happening in the 1850s. And um, it was the 1890s airship mystery and the known historical advancement of, you know, human-powered flight that kind of motivated Del Shao to start documenting his story in these private journals and albums. Um, and, and my conclusion is the, the, the closer you look at it, you know, the less you, you buy the outsider artist. It was all his imagination. Yeah, because um, he, he was taking – more to it. Because it seems like he was he was making these drawings, and then he was probably drawing from things that he was actually seeing, yeah. and, then, and then he was actually describing what was in the drawings. Correct. That's what I think. Yeah. That's. I mean, I'm. Uh, you know, at present, I'm convinced that's what he was doing. That he was telling true stories. So, what um, was the Sonora Aero, Aero Club, and it and and it was it was associated with NIMSA, so it would have been associated with this. Prussian group. Yes. Well, um, Dale Shaw even talks about a uh, military guy um, coming to the group in 1858, I think, um, wanting them to build military versions of their flying machines. And the leaders of the group said, no, we're, we're not going to do it, particularly the man who was the leader of the group. And Dale Shaw described this military man as that Prussian officer. Okay. So here you have Del Shaw. He's already said that NIMSA was a German-based organization. 
he says a military guy who he describes as Prussian comes to the group, okay? And um, there you go. There's, you know, yet more evidence that NIMSA was a German group. But, um, you know, there's there's the connection there, according to Del Shao himself. This isn't something that, you know, is conjectured. This is stuff he said. So what kind of technology are they, are they using? Because th- this is amazing stuff. I mean, you're talking about 1850s. You're talking 60 years before the Wright brothers. Yes. Well, I, I provide, as you know, in the book Origin, a chart that makes it easy because, you know, you talk about this stuff and people say, oh, my God, Bosley's saying that there was, you know, those Bob Lazar S4 style flying saucers before the Civil War. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is these were what I call contraption. These things were, you know, somewhat fragile. You know, they were, they they had wood, they had fabric, you know, but of course metal also. And they had um, probably something akin to uh, the Mercury Vortex engine um, and, and, uh, you know, a very rudimentary form of the bell, what would become the Nazi bell. Very rudimentary form, which meant you know, it was hazardous. And I equate the 1850s arrows of the Sonora Arrow Club to be the equivalent of the Model T, okay, of these anti-gravity flying craft. So think of the Model T automobile and compare that to today's cars, and, and you'll see what I mean. Well, the, the 1850s arrow was the Model T um, of these airships. Um, and then let's let's jump ahead. Um, you know, you've got the 1890s airships, which were much more sophisticated and larger than what Dell shall describe in the 1850s. Well, that's like comparing a, a Model T to say a 1958 Buick Roadmaster, right? Right. The, the 1958 Buick Roadmaster was much more sophisticated than a Model T. Okay, and just like what the 1890s airships were to the 1850s. Sonora Arrows was the same thing that a 58 Buick Roadmaster was to the Model T. Now, let's zip ahead again into the, the 20th century to the World War II and after era. Okay, that flying saucer would be equivalent to a 1985 Porsche. So now you've got the, the, the mid 20th century, uh, mid to late 20th century flying saucer, which is the equivalent of the 1985 Porsche, and you compare that to a Buick Roadmaster. Okay, and then you compare that again to the Model T. So you've got the modern flying saucer to the 1890s mystery airship to the Arrow, and that's equivalent of the 85 Porsche to the 58 Buick to the Model T. So stages of development. I probably said the same thing four different ways, but I want to make it easy for people to to see what I'm talking about. Um, And and it shows a progression of technology. that, That think about it. It was 40 years between the Sonora Aero Club and the 1890s airship mystery. And then it was another, uh, you know, 40 to 60 years or more um, to the uh, the modern flying saucer, so to speak. So you see the you see that there was time for this technology to progress. Sure. Uh, and a bunch of time. You talk about 100 years. Exactly. In, uh, in exactly. that time period. Let's talk about the American group. Because you okay. have, you basically have in the book two groups that are competing with each other. You have this, this NIMSA, this German organization, and you yeah. have the American group. 
And I thought, yeah, I would say stuff... more that it's more accurate to say they were uh, they had a, opposing objectives, right? Rather right. than competing, there's a difference there. Gotcha. Well, yeah. you you, you kind of start off with the Civil War and this actual and, and this stuff is documented. Uh, yeah. I, I can't remember the the gentleman's name, but he actually was uh, he actually had pitched to the War Department some kind of flying craft. Yeah, Dr. Solomon Andrews. He even had a patent for his flying Aeron, he called it. And how did it work? What was it that he, what was the technology that he was, that was there that? Well, he had, you know, a, it was a, a three piece assembly that kind of looked like Zeppelin bodies and with a uh, command gondola underneath. But this thing was powered, and it it moved unlike balloons. It had more maneuverability. It was much faster. And he flew this thing, demonstrated it. It was 80 feet long, uh, demonstrated it in front of news reporters as well as members of the War Department. Really? This is very, like, steampunk kind of stuff here. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) Much like Jules Verne. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And so there's also, you mentioned in the book, uh, associated with this American group, a gentleman named Keeley. And you mentioned him before, that he had this technology and that he was kind of thought of as kind of like a quack at the time and a fraud. But you, you do a good job of looking at that and saying that there might be a lot more to it. What was his technology that he was developing? And this well, is in the 1860s? He with um, uh, sound, okay, and um, rotational um, uh, uh, concepts, using sound and rotation, much like um, it's rumored that Edward Schemalman used to build the coral castle to uh, be able to manipulate these massive coral blocks, you know, just being the small guy he was. And Keeley was able to do similar things. Basically, he was messing around with anti-gravity. It's interesting. You bring up the scandal and the fraud. Uh, Theo Pymans in his book, and and others, of course, uh, but Theo uh, Pymans in his Keeley book does an excellent job in presenting that other witnesses to what Keeley did and people that worked with him um, were able to explain uh, the detail that proved that the accusations of fraud were erroneous. Hmm. Okay? But you don't hear that part. You know, people, the minute they hear somebody, they hear someone is accused of fraud, they stop there. And they go, well, that must have been it. Well, you know me, I don't try to argue with those people. I'm not even writing for those people. I, I don't try to convince anybody who's opposed to, you know, what I'm trying to convince them of. That's a waste of time. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, Keeley was messing with anti-gravity in the late 19th century. And a lot of the things he was working with, um, you know, found their way into the lore of what was going on with these mystery airships. And then you have in the 20th century, Victor Schauberger. Now, Keeley was working with, as I said before, he was working with concepts of rotation and spin. Well, this is what we, you know, torsion, which is a concept that's been tied to the Nazi bell. Well, Victor Schauberger in the early 20th century, um, he was the German researcher and inventor who was working with the same concepts, this 
the rotational dynamics, the torsion, um, and they both, Keeley worked with the, the rotation of water and, and the powers of, of water. Schauberger was doing the same thing. So you see, you have Keeley in the, the late 19th century, um, and then you have Schauberger who kind of picks up where Keeley left off with Keeley type concepts, and, you know, he brings it into the 20th century, and, you know, you have him tied with, you know, the early days of um, Nazi technology. And I didn't even, you know, get into uh, Schauberger in uh, the origin book because uh, my purpose with this book was to bring everything up to the uh, World War II milieu. Right. Um, because that's been covered um, elsewhere. Uh, so, uh, But that's the progression is, you know, anti-gravity working with um, these particular concepts. And Keeley was really ahead of his time with this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's talk a little bit about the 1897 airship mystery, because this is something that has always fascinated me. And, you know, when I, when I looked into it and when I was very much into the extraterrestrial hypothesis and everything, I thought, okay, these are, these must have been aliens at the time and people were interpreting the flying saucers as being, uh, something that they could identify with in the late 19th century. But you look at it, and a lot of other researchers have looked at it and say that, no, this was a very much a down-to-earth invention. These things were actually flying. And you even go in the book to say that there's probably even – there's names that were even given of these pilots. Sure. Yeah. Um, you're talking about um, uh, Colonel Tillman right. and uh, Amos Dolbear. These right. were guys who, you know, were named in the Stephenville landing incident in which several witnesses, um, you know, had a conversation with uh, Tillman. And he told them what they were doing and where they were flying and, you know, told them a little bit about the craft. And, uh, you know, the people that want to insist that this was all an E.T. thing, they very often leave those facts out entirely. They just stick with people saw this amazing thing in the sky and they don't tell the rest of the story because the rest of the story does not, um, you know, does not support the ET hypothesis. And when you look at all the facts and all these details, you begin to see really quickly, um, and this includes the Aurora incident, you see that, sorry, this was not ET. Um, but I find it fascinating that it was a human thing. That you know, yeah. when, when you think about what these guys were doing, what they were developing, um, to some measure of success, according to the accounts, um, to me, that's just as fascinating as any visitor from another planet. Uh, did the do you think the American government knew that this was going on, and were they in association with the government at this time? And it was just. I think that by. By the 1890s, the decision to break away was in their in the it was consciously part of what was going on with this uh, group, which I think, as I state in the book, was really America's first black project. Solomon Andrews Technology, according to the official story. Uh, Edwin Stanton said, nah, we're not interested. Um, I don't think that's true. I think the U.S. government did buy the technology. I think they put together a group to develop it. 
I think that during the um, Reconstruction era, in the post-Civil War years, um, there there weren't a lot of resources to go to this black project. So I think that's where private industrialists came in. And over the um, ensuing decades, they developed quietly and secretly um, on their own. And by the 1890s, they began to demonstrate um, where they were able to take this technology. And that was their first taste of, wow, look what we can do with this. Um, so that by the early 1900s, sometime around the turn of that century, the decision was made to break away independently, um, as I state in the book, because the deal they would have made would have made sure that the technology belonged to them, not the U.S. government. Um, I would say that if my scenario is true, is right, and really happened, it probably schooled the U.S. government so that in the future any kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, military industrial projects, they, they made darn sure that, you know, the U.S. government would be the beneficiary of the technology. Um, but I think with this one, by the 1890s, with what they were able to do, um, I, I think that ultimately resulted in the breakaway of the American group. Right. And let me ask you too, this is the, this will be the, one of the biggest questions that I think people ask when they're confronted with this, this kind of theory or this, this kind of, uh, hypothesis about what happened is why not use this in, in warfare? Ah, yeah. That is a question I, I, I say in the book is, you know, uh, it's a stickler. Why did we not see this in the Civil War? Why did we not see this in the First World War? Um, it would have been a really hell of an advantage. I mean, it really would have been. Of course. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Um, it, you've got to remember the mindset of the era. Um, you know, let's go back to the early 20th century after World War One. You know, Billy Mitchell... Um, you know, there was there was the wait was it Billy Mitchell? I'm I'm getting my guys mixed up. Yeah, Billy Mitchell. Yeah, you're right. The the, the was court martialed over you know pushing the uh, the use of air power. You know, um, back then the Navy was the primary uh, branch, and um, you know, air power was just you know for recon, um, kind of a second measure. And the early aviators, military aviators, were saying, "No, I mean, this is this is really we we really need to be using this uh, this you know air power aircraft um, you know needs to emerge in the forefront of you know military application." And even after World War One, you know, they were uh, they were reluctant to uh, see this and do this. So go back, you know, a hundred years before that, and you know, it was even less of you know a consideration. Um, you know, it seemed like the Prussians were the only ones who saw, you know, the benefit of this. So, um, which then leads to the question, okay, if these guys were developing these things, um, you would think this technology would have impressed, you know, the, uh, the, the governments at war with each other enough to say, hey, this will give us an advantage. Well, let's remember the Sonora guys were, were vehemently opposed 
to using this technology for um, military purposes, applications. Right. And by the time World War One happened, um, in my opinion, the American group that had this had already broken away. And I think they had, by that time, they didn't have an interest in having their technology embroiled in yet another, you know, human war, right? Uh, Earth-based war. You could really make the case with World War One that we really didn't understand the technology that we had in 1914. And it took so long through the course of that war to even come up with a technology that could effectively fight it. So, you know, I, I can definitely see that for sure. You know, they were sending, they were still in 1916, a hundred years ago, they were still sending at the, at the Psalm, they were still sending guys into information into machine gun fire. You know? Exactly. It was, you know, the style of warfare, um, you know, uh, was just not such that uh, it, when we know in history that, you know, a, a prominent military officer after World War One was court-martialed over, you know, just trying to get them to use airplanes. Well, that tells you the mindset. OK, it was almost, I think, by some it, um, I've read that it, it was distasteful to some. It was an ungentlemanly thing to drop bombs from balloons even, yeah. you know, during the Civil War. And, you know, it, it was just something that gentlemen didn't do, in the opinion of some people, even though, you know, you got into World War One, and, of course, they were dropping, you know, hand bombs and things like that um, from the airplanes, but it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't a main um, tactic. And so that's what they were up against. But, you know, by this time, you know, the American group, in my opinion, would have broken away and when I say broke away, they, it sound, you know, some people say, well, I can't believe that. They were Americans, blah, 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 but they broke away, see? So they would have had no interest in getting involved in World War I. Um, now, however, then there's the German group, you know, the way they were, they were all ready to use this stuff in the 1800s for the military purposes. Well, the best explanation I have, because it is a sticking question, I admit that, it is a sticking question for my theory, why didn't we see at least the Germans use this stuff? And I think it was because they knew that if they used this, the American group, whether they broke away or not, would have then at that time gotten involved and opposed them with equal strength. Come after And them, yeah. they decided that exposing um, the technology or being openly uh, uh, opposed was not something in their best interest. So therefore, that's why those two conflicts um, pretty much were void of this particular technology. Um, and honestly, that's the best explanation I can give. Okay. Well, let's talk about how the, the American group broke away. And, and, and this, to me, was where things got kind of bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> this this concept of this and the reason you call them the 1903 group. What's the reason you call them that? Excuse me, just a second. Sure. What do you think about all this, Rob? Well, I'm sorry, I had a dog that was <laughs> demanding to go out. <laughs> uh, I know how that is. I'm glad, I'm glad we touched on the militarization of it because that was what I was going to ask. Cause... Yeah. Repeat that last question again. Sorry. Oh, the, the breakaway of the American group, uh, to me, that's where kind of things get a little bizarre. Cause you talk, you do call them the 1903 group 
And yeah. uh, why do you call them that? <laughs> because there is a rumor, a really fun rumor. Yeah. And in 1903, somebody attempted to go off planet with an airship, specifically according to the rumor in the lore, to Mars. I talk about that in the book only because it's out there. It's the elephant in the room on this. Um, the, the, the rumor uh, includes Tesla. Um, and it's something that you know, you got to look at when you're talking about this business of these mystery airships, because it was so soon also after the 1890s airship mystery flat. And in the book, I say, you know, hypothetically, let's say they tried this. Um, I even um, present Oliver Heaviside's work um, in the book to show that, hey, somebody was working on technology that would have made this possible, even if it's a stretch, but, you know, possible, theoretically. So, you know, what if this were true? And I present this to say, if anything, if anything, and it doesn't have to be true, but if anything would have inspired this American group, um to finally make the decision to break away, it would have been if they would have accomplished something as astounding as that. Now, it's yes, pretty astounding in 1903. I go into it in the book, uh, it would change what we think we know about Mars and all of that. It could have been just to the moon. Um, it could have not happened at all. It could be that they just developed their technology to the point and said, you know, hey, we're breaking away. We're our own thing. And, and that would still support my uh, uh, theory that during the World Wars, basically NIMSA, the German group, was kept in check by the American group saying, we're not going to get involved in this conflict, and neither will you. Because if you do, we will, and this will all be exposed. And you know that if anybody can uh, stand up against you and possibly defeat you, it's us. So I think what it was now, yeah, what I'm saying is, is that you had two groups that could have changed history and the outcome of the war that agreed to not actively participate. Some people would find that impossible to believe, but others who understand how, you know, politics and things work and power and things work, it, it, it's perfectly logical. Um, but we do see hints of them in the, you know, certain technological developments that, that we do know about, and particularly in the post-World War II military-industrial complex era. You know, um, I think after those conflicts, uh, um, you know, some of this technology we're talking about, you know, began to emerge, you know, um, including, you know, at uh, Roswell. Hmm, that's interesting. Do you, th you think that that, that Roswell could have been what crashed there could have been something from one of these civiliz breakaway civilizations? I'm sorry, there was a vehicle with a giant blow horn outside. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Roswell could have been a craft from one of these breakaway civilizations? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, it was not extraterrestrial, in my opinion. Okay. Um, now, people familiar with my writing, I agree with that. know that I have written about my father's claim that it was a hidden civilization here on Earth. Um, 
And uh, I think even that is more possible than uh, Roswell being E.T. Yeah, I do. I think that um, Roswell was, um, you know, the best argument presented so far for Roswell being a, a human event is Joseph Farrell's Roswell and the Reich. All the E.T. people out there are going, boo, hiss, hate that guy, hate Walter for bringing him up. But, you know, 99% <laughs> of those have never read the book. Um, it is the best argument for what happened at Roswell that has been published so far, bar none. Okay? Um, so uh, I'm going to have to check that out. I'm going to have to get Dr. Farrell on the show, too. He's Yeah, it's, uh, he gets so much venom. For that, and yet the 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 his the biggest critics of that book have never read it. Some of them I know, yeah. and I've asked, "Have you read the book?" Well, no. Uh huh. Well, there you go. Just because it um, goes against the paradigm that they accept. Yeah, and it's and there's and it's so strongly against it, and it's so thoroughly researched and presented that they they try to nitpick on stuff, and even their arguments when they nitpick are very weak. It's just ad hominem, personal opinion type stuff. Well, let's take. Um, it's an inconvenient book because you know. Here's what it does: it not only you know deflates the uh, the ET mythology, uh, you know that that just clings to that incident, but it opens up what I'm talking about. It, it really makes you look at well, what what was humankind doing? What right. had they been doing for a while? And you ask what kind of, you know inspired me to write this book. It, it was a combination of. Uh, you know, what I had written about and researched uh, relative to the Sonora Aero Club and Del Shao in the 1890s mystery up to, you know, earlier last year. And then, you know, looking at Farrell's um, material in Roswell and the Reich, and, you know, I thought, you know what, a, a sto- there's a story there and it needs to be told. And so that's what I, I set out to do was to present, you know, all this evidence that gets ignored. Um uh, by the ET crowd uh, and suppressed. And, you know, it needs to be presented because it does put a new light on all of this. You know, one of the things that fascinates me, and that's, uh, this is from Dr. Farrell's work, is the Kecksburg UFO crash. Mm-hmm. And that that has been, the way it is described and the pictures that have been uh, drawn of it by the by the witness accounts, I mean, it yeah. looks just like this Nazi bail thing, this electromagnetic device that the Nazis were working on in World War II, which has been proven. Exactly. And then, and then also there's, there's renderings of the same kind of little device in Del Shell's work. Exactly. Exactly. There's the bell in Del Shell, in Del Shell's drawings. And I present that, um, in, in the book. How, how does NIMSA, relate to the Nazis? Is, does NIMSA give rise to them? Are they an extension of NIMSA? I'm sorry, I had someone at the door. Apologize. It's okay. <laughs> is, uh, how is NIMSA related to the Nazis? Okay, here's what I think about that. Um, NIMSA... <laughs> And the Nazis. So we're not we're not the only ones that have dogs barking, Rob. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I'm the only one here. And you're, you're good, <laughs> Walter. <laughs> we have we have Rob's dog bark here in the show sometimes too. So I just wanted to make him feel better. 
So what do you think, Rob? This is this you're all just kind of taking it in over here and Well, it's I like I said earlier, it's just fascinating. I've never heard any of this before. <laughs> this is great. Yeah. You kind of just like you kind of just like taking it in and I kind of want to go back and look at the history of aviation in general. Yeah. I apologize, guys. I had my window open and a no neighbor problem. came and they were calling me and I thought it was the other dis- uh, so I had to go call my mom on the phone on an interview right now. So you're like, go away, go away. <laughs> so yeah, so the relationship with the Nazis and Nimza, this is an this is interesting because you kind of paint this picture that Nimza really uh, I, gives I, rise know, to them. Due to the obvious, you know, you had the Prussian nationalists, yeah, who wanted to have you know to unify Germany in the 19th century, and they succeeded. We know that. Um, and the guys who emerged, you know, the bankers, the industrialists, and the mystics who emerged out of the 19th century Prussian unified German milieu, these are guys who you can trace that were instrumental in the early rise of the Nazis. So there's a, a major thread there, and I focus on right. that German thread for obvious reasons, because NIMSA being identified as a German organization by Del Schau, and lo and behold, you know, you have... This Germanic thread, you know, running into the Nazis from the 19th century. And these are the guys who would fit the description of guys most likely to be the guys who founded the Prussian Nimza or, or were eventually, you know, recruited by the Russian Nimza and helped make their stuff happen. And that is one of the most fascinating aspects of, uh, of the research that I did because you can point to these guys. You can identify them. Uh, Carl Kellner, Friedrich Waniak, um, uh, uh, Walter Rathenau, who is, you know, the, his his father was the uh, founder of AEG, and, and he was, a, I think, a CEO of AG, AEG himself um, during the early Nazi era. And Halmer Schacht and, and guys like this, these are historical guys. They, they existed. And they also had in their background the qualifications and the interests and proclivities that would have tied them to a group like this mysterious NIMSA. Um, it's one of the, uh, I think, one of the strongest um, historical threads to argue the case. Um, what, what about the, the Tula Society? The what? The Tula Society? The Tuli Society? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Tuli Society would have been one of the groups definitely in, um, influenced by the NIMSA. Because, um, as Theo Pymans, you know, uh, points out and reveals in his Keeley book, this, uh, NIMSA airship milieu, uh, by the 1890s was very much involved with, uh, spiritualism and theosophy and these new age occult, um, circles. And yeah, Blavatsky, these are the people yeah. also, uh, you know, by name, you know, uh, uh, Madame Blavatsky was a huge fan of um, John Keeley and Clara Bloomfield Moore and uh, Olcott and Ledbetter and, and all these people, uh, Annie Decent, all these people who were involved, and, and these are historical people, okay? Um, Keeley was a, a just a darling for their circles, but out of their circles from the late 19th century into the early 20th century, then you have guys who were involved with, you know, the early German... Um, uh, mystical milieu, okay, going into the 20th century, 
And, you know, these are the guys that were also involved in the formation of the Thule Society and, and other organizations. Rudolf Steiner was in these circles. Um, Carl Mariah Willigan, um, he was, uh, you know, an occult guru to Heinrich Himmler, okay? And Willigan right. was emerged from this uh, early 20th century German mystic milieu that I'm talking about. And to become, you know, the personal guru and advisor to Heinrich Himmler, well, there you go. There, that that right there is just one prominent, you know, Nazi connection. Um, Willigit was made an officer of the SS, of course, as we know. And, um, yeah, and there's more. You know, the, the more you look at it, the more you find. Not the more you see. There's a difference. <laughs> the more yeah. you look at it, the more you actually find that uh, would would tie or thread, you know, these uh, ninja guys to the Nazis. And, and I that um, the basic Nazi philosophy served the Nimza well. So, you know, they got their backing. And, and Nimza too also had a lot of influence in South America, as you write. And sure, you, yeah. see, um, you definitely see that, that uh, they were behind what became, you know, these these German colonies um, that were developed and eventually came the hideouts for the various Nazi fugitives, yeah. Right, in, in Argentina and in Brazil and in, in these places. You know, we had, uh, God, it's going to go on two years now in a couple of months, uh, Gerard Williams, who uh, co-wrote a book called Grey Wolf about uh, Hitler surviving. And, yeah, and, yeah. and fascinating stuff. I mean, just uh, you it, entirely plausible. And, and it, the and what the case that he makes is just you can see it. You can actually see that happening. That that it would have been entirely possible that he would have he would have gotten off a U boat on a U boat into Argentina and was just hiding out in these remote places. Yeah, it, it's you know. Um, it, and, and the evidence, these little pieces of evidence um, that are revealing this, you know, that naturally they're emerging the more we get away from the World War II era. And the because Cold War. The people that would have had a stake in keeping this secret, you know, they're dying off. And, right? and the, and the and Cold War, too. I think that's important as well. Because course, I yeah, think there's a lot of information and disinformation that we used against the Soviets or that we kept from them. Yeah, and, and, you know, our hand, you know, through Operation Paperclip and, and other things, um, you know, whatever the intention, you know, there's, there's, you know, the fingerprints in that, you know, naturally, yeah, during throughout, you know, the years of the Cold War, they want to keep that secret. And what, the Cold War, you know, just technically ended in the uh, early 90s with the fall of the, uh, you know, with the Russian coup and the fall of the wall and all that stuff. So, right. You know, and then it takes a few years after that for, you know, because people, they, they keep a tight lid on things. And uh, let's not forget also, there's the, uh, you know, the, the public perception. You know, people want to know that these guys were defeated. They want to know that they were all caught. They want to know that, yeah, Hitler died in the bunker. It's just, that's what they want to accept. They want to be done with that. And, you know, when there's evidence that shows otherwise, it, it kind of makes, it unsettles people. You know, it makes them a little nervous, and rightfully so. Right, because you can look at a lot of the connections that were there in those communities and how the the Nazis began to move 
uh, a lot of their assets into those countries in the 1940s. I mean, you in when they some of them saw the writing on the wall, saw that you know they weren't going to militarily win World War II, and they began to move those assets over there. And, you know, whether Hitler was with them or not, to me, really doesn't matter because a whole apparatus that later became kind of this really just this multinational corporation in a way that it just that's what it eventually morphed into. Yeah. I mean, you know, I talk about it in the book, you know, Homer Schock was the economist banker who um, really applied this um, exporting Germany concept uh, for the Nazis. I argue, of course, that it was done first by NIMSA. Yeah. But it was, uh, there you go, there's a NIMSA concept, in my opinion, that influenced the Nazis directly. You know, Schock's idea was you gave uh, aid money to foreign countries, smaller countries, so that they could develop their own agriculture and their own economy and uh, right after you give them the money, they conveniently buy your machinery and your technology and your personnel, you know, with know-how to run uh, these uh, new industrial complexes in your country. And there you go. You've got Germany transplanted um, via the economy, via the market, into, you know, these other countries. Yeah. Well, what Germany could do then was, you know, against the uh, Versailles Treaty, um, which people knew they were doing this, they could um, build and develop and pursue things that, you know, after World War One. now we're talking, um, they weren't allowed to do according to the treaty, you know, munitions and military technology. And, and, and one of the things they did was they expanded upon the, um, you know, the German uh, colonies, so to speak, in South America, for example. Places like Colonia Dignidad. Um, I think shocked when he applied this to the Nazi uh, system. I think he was just taking his lead from what, you know, the NIMSA-backed um, Prussians, early unified Germany under the Kaiser, had been doing already right. in South America. They laid the groundwork, um, the groundwork for it. Uh, they they pretty much tested it and made it work, and I think shocked just expanded upon their idea. One of the theses in the in the book, and this is kind of a, an aside, but I found this fascinating. Uh, the 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 idea that Hitler survived, and mm-hmm. in Argentina, well, in in that book, Grey Wolf, they talk about. And I, I've seen actually the the movie that they the do- documentary that they made about it, but uh, they they talk about Bormann, Martin Bormann surviving as well, and what happens to Hitler eventually. As he's down there, as he just gets sidelined by Borman, he just becomes this figurehead, and Borman is the real person in control, and Borman just who cr- creates this this corporation that sure. no longer has the interest to say that we're going to conquer the world. Oh, we're going to conquer the world, but we're going to do it economically. We're going to do it, you know, clandestinely. We're going to do it gonna, from within. We're going to do it from gonna, within. Yeah, we're not going to do an external conquest. We're just going to, um, uh, uh, you know, we're just going to, um, what's the word, infiltrate yeah. and take over and, from within. And Hitler, and Hitler just, he just dies forgotten about, essentially. Well, I, I, I not forgotten about, maybe, you know, the, the illusion that, uh, yeah. you know, the story that he'd killed himself, 
you know, he's hidden, but I, I think he still remained very much, you know, a revered figurehead, kind of like, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the, you know, what, like what Abraham Lincoln as a president is to most Americans, you know, or George Washington, I should say. Um, you know, that's what Hitler was to those guys. But you're right. He was effectively not the manager anymore. He was like yeah. the, you know, the ex, you know, president, um, you know, treated with respect and revered, but not really the guy running the show. Sidelined. You know, on. Yeah, exactly. But I think he was still, he was certainly not forgotten by those guys, but um, he was hidden from the world for obvious reasons. But, you know, we could we could probably argue that, you know, certain world leaders knew the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say Stalin always suspected it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, you know, the Russians made up that story. I think that story of the suicide in the bunker and a lot of people do. I'm not, it's not original with me, but I, I accept that theory that, uh, that, that was bullshit. You know, yeah. the Russians <laughs> and the Americans, um, accepting it and proliferating it, you know, we had, our own agenda for doing that too. Sure. And and some of it too had to do with the fact that we had, uh, that there were certain people in our government and, uh, a lot of blue bloods and, and industrialists that had such a ties to the Nazis before world war two. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's all that stuff with Prescott I mean, Bush. Alan Dulles um, would be a good example of that. Yep. And, um, you know, so there you go. That's the thing. You look, you look at history and you see the, uh, the, the facts, you know, the, the documented facts and truths. And you see where stuff was kind of pushed to the margin or suppressed a little bit or glossed over for, you know, a variety of reasons. And it begins, it might not be the fun to some people's minds. It might not be the fun theory. You know, um, the gray aliens or, or the little aliens from Close Encounters <laughs> coming down from a wonderful paradise and they're so morally superior and they're going to come down and they'll take the lucky few, the select, into La La Land and all is well. <laughs> this is a fairy tale. and um, Heaven's Gate style stuff here. What's that? The Heaven's Gate cult stuff. Yeah, almost. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, it's almost as scary, but it's just unfortunately, uh, for, the, for people who really cling to that, um, the facts do not bear out. Um, the, the facts way support more the, um, the human origin and the, the human explanation, earth-based human explanation for, uh, for, for Roswell and, and these things. Um, but you don't. I'm not saying ETs don't exist. Right. I'm for the record. Uh, you know, but uh, I'm saying in the case of Roswell, I I do not think that was yeah. ET. Aurora was not ET. Um, and the real story here that I think is being hidden, um, more so than the, the existence of ET or just as much, is this this human story, hidden human story behind the last 150 years. Yeah, and and and, and to me, it's an even more amazing story. Then yeah, oh, well, what's been, what's been given amazing. to us? Equally amazing, absolutely, yep. absolutely. But uh, you know, um, there's a lot of people that just don't want to hear that because the ET hypothesis, adherence to it, has become like a religion. It's you know, people they've got emotions attached to it. Um, in some cases, people's livelihoods are attached to it. You know, you know, I read um, uh, I read Olaf Phillips' book. I had him on the show a couple of years ago as well, huh? and. Uh, you know, I know that you you know Olaf, 
too. And, oh, yeah. You know, one of the things I found fascinating in his book about the secret space program was that, you know, these different craft that were seen and these witnesses talking about these inscriptions that were seen on the side of them. And then Olaf goes back and looks at these inscriptions and says, hey, this kind of looks like this fascist symbol from the 1930s and it's like you know (laughs) then you have the valiant thor and and uh everybody talking about the the blonde hair blue-eyed nordics and the venusians and hmm interesting (laughs) yeah exactly exactly and i think that's why you saw the rise of the pushing of the little gray alien, the big headed alien with the black eyes. I think that's why that concept was started to be pushed heavily in the eighties that, Oh no, this is the alien. This is the alien. And you quit hearing about those Nordic human aliens, so-called aliens. Right. Yeah. And I think that's because the people wanting to hide the, uh, the, the human source of this stuff, the human breakaway source of this stuff. Um, they decided that the ET meme you know, the ET hypothesis, um, you know, would be pushed and they pushed it well. Well, you know, where it's like a religion. When when you look at the Travis Walton case, uh, that's a perfect case because if you look at the movie fire in the sky that was made about him, uh, that was changed from, you have these little yellow creatures that are putting sheets of skin over him and he's screaming and stuff. And, and, but the actual story uh, Travis Walton encountered one little being, but everybody else that he encountered were humans. Mm-hmm. There you go. They, I mean, they've even changed the, uh, you know, that's evidence right there of changing the uh, classic cases that yeah. are documented um, to serve the, the non-human ET hypothesis that they wanted everybody to buy off on. Travis Walton himself says, I did not see those little creatures. I saw people, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Let's not forget that, you know, that Dr. Carol Rosen says that, you know, um, Warner Von Braun told her that this ET thing would be part of, you know, what uh, the, 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 the people that want to run the world, you know, control the world, that it would be part of their strategy. To, you know, mislead the public at large, you know, the, the, the ET thing. And again, I'm not saying there aren't ETs out there. Of, of course, I think they're out there. Um, personally, I think the dirty secret is that there's human beings exactly like us on other worlds. Um, and the argument I get against that is, oh, it's impossible for any humans exactly like us to have developed on any other world. Really? Okay, here's the thing. They've never seen when, Battlestar Galactica, the new version. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When science, okay, when science can show me that they've sent people to every known world in the universe and have not found a single human like us anywhere else, then I'll say you can say that. But until... We've traveled to every corner, every celestial body in this universe and found not a single human just like us. You cannot say that. So I say one of the secrets is, is that there's, they're out there and there's a lot more of them than, you know, they'd like us to know. Um, that's not saying that the little grays don't exist. That's not saying that, you know, other alien life doesn't exist. I'm just saying that, uh, that, that theme is being used, um, to manipulate. And well, it has they're do, they've done a great job. 
because you know the people that cling to that um boy they they their feathers get ruffled when you talk about what we're talking about here tonight <laughs> i want to ask you uh let's get you let's get your feathers ruffled a little bit uh i sit down to watch this movie a documentary called mm-hmm. mirage men on netflix uh-huh. And I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a I thought it was a great documentary about disinformation, about how mm-hmm. that's been used against the UFO community. And mm-hmm. uh, but I'm watching it, and then all of a sudden you come up on the screen, and I'm like, yes, oh my God, it's Walter Bosley. <laughs> what do you think about that documentary? Um, you know, mixed feelings. Um, I was asked to be part of it. Um. You know, uh, uh, I'm friends with Greg Bishop, and he was acquainted with those guys, uh, Pilkington and, and John Lundgren, I think is his name, um, while they were doing this. And he helped work on other parts of the documentary, and he had told them about me, or I think they'd heard me on his show. And so they asked me to be part of it, and I agreed. And um, I think that it's, you know, I answered their questions honestly. And, um, stand by what I said, uh, you know, whatever spin goes on that, I don't always agree with. Um, I think it was skewed because when you read the book, they're really, here's the interesting thing. They're condemning, uh, an organization, you know, Air Force OSI, okay, which we can agree is much smaller than the Central Intelligence Agency, smaller budget, smaller size, you know, smaller amount of resources. Um, they're condemning, you know, they pretty much, you know, the DOD, the, particularly the U.S. Air Force and especially the Air Force OSI. They're the, they're the guys behind all this disinformation. It's terrible. And those dirty, rotten guys. But what's interesting is they have high praise for, um, I think it's Dr. Kit Green, who's a CIA guy. Yeah. For here, people would, you know, just, you know, they just laugh their asses off. When you hear about guys who, you know, you know, oh, the U.S. government, you know, the military and the Air Force and the OSI, but boy, this CIA guy, he's he's a great guy and, you know, he's all well and good. Well, you know, my view of that was that uh, guys, you know, how why weren't you equally suspicious of, you know, the agency right. if you're going to be painting, you know, every OSI agent with the same brush? You know, that's, that's my only point of contention is um, – uh, you know, I wondered, okay, what's behind this? Why are these guys making this film? Why are they so okay with the CIA guy? Um, when a lot of researchers, when they're talking disinfo and they're talking conspiracy, you know, government conspiracy, they uh, they would include CIA. You know, they would say CIA was probably behind whatever OSI was doing disinfo-wise. So I find that to be suspicious, and I think the viewer ought to question you know, particularly, you know, they, they need to read the book, um, you know. Um, yeah, so, so, but but it was, you know, it was a well-done documentary. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, I I clearly said the things I say in it, and I stand by it. Um, like I said, I, I don't agree with some of the spin that, you know, some viewers have put on it. But, you know, in the documentary, they presented what I said, you know, fairly, and... Um, you know, in the doc, they didn't they didn't put a particular spin on uh, what I said. I think that you know a viewer comes away with with their own conclusion. But it's well done. My understanding is that I think it won a couple of awards at festivals, and I think they're finally getting some distribution for it or something. 
Well, but uh, I, I get asked about it a lot. I've never met Richard Doty, for the record. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I usually don't go on record with opinions um, or even go too far in private conversations with opinions on the Doty situation. Because I'll tell you right now, in Richard Doty's defense, I didn't work with him. I didn't work on his operation. Um, I haven't read his case file. Um, and until people read the case file, None of us know. If you haven't read that case file, you don't know the details um, as to what happened with any of that stuff, you know, particularly where Benowitz was concerned and stuff. Um, well, well, because I, I guarantee you the case file has stuff that, you know, the makers of Mirage Men and, and every other um, person who's documented that case or written about it has no clue. Well, it was interesting. It was interesting in one scene, and I forgot the kind of the context of this, but they were talking to somebody and they were, they were asking them what the documentary was about. And the guy says, well, it's about guys, uh, Air Force guys like Richard Doty and Walter Bosley misleading people, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking to myself, Walter's not associated with this with this guy i mean Doty's one yeah. thing but you had nothing to yeah, do with any of a, that i was a special agent for the air force osi you damn right proud of it did a great job um uh and my bosses i think thought i did too and uh, but you I weren't you, but you I weren't was, involved with him i mean you weren't you weren't exactly, in that capacity i didn't become an osi agent until um uh, 1994 Okay. Yeah. Um, this, all this stuff that happened, like, particularly with Doty now, um, that happened in the 80s. Right. You know, I was in college in the 80s and, and working for the FBI in the late 80s and early 90s. I didn't go into the Air Force until, um, I, I reported for, uh, officer school in August of 93, was commissioned on uh, 18 November, um, uh, 19 November 93, and, and right after, uh, New Year's went to the OSI Academy. And started duty as an OSI agent in uh, April of 1994, and um, I was busy hunting spies and running uh, uh, counter espionage operations at a right path with the deployment to Saudi, hunting down Bin Laden and, and terrorists for six months in the mix there. And that's um, a whole show we could do on that, probably. <laughs> you know that that's what I was doing. Now in that. What, what makes me get talked to and be asked questions about is when you're a counterintelligence agent, no aside, you do pro, what's called program protection work. Okay. And that is you, you, some of your duties, your investigative and operational activities are to protect classified Air Force resources. And my, my comment that, you know, people hear me say is that, um, is that if people believing that an advanced Air Force aircraft is a spaceship from another world, if that belief, that idea protects that technology, right, from being revealed to the enemy or whatever, um, I'm all for letting people believe that, you know, Um, and I don't really care who's going to whine and cry about that. If people saw stuff out at uh, Area 51 and they were convinced it was from another world and, and the Air Force was just letting them think, you know, um, or encouraging the idea that it was someone from another world in order to uh, protect that technology. I'm all for that. But, I, uh, I would, if I were reactivated and they said, that's going to be your job full time. You damn right. I'd do it. But Greg, Greg, so destroy people's lives. And yeah. hell no. And I don't think Doty did either. If you read closely, particularly if you read Greg Bishop's book, project beta, 
you look closely, I think you'll see that the people who were likely doing the nefarious stuff, that was a different organization, a different alphabet agency. Which one? Probably NSA. Yeah, probably. And um, that's not OSI. Uh, You know, so I I think people, as far as like particularly the Benowitz thing and against Doty, they've been looking in the wrong place. Are you familiar with the... Are you familiar with the uh, Brindlesham Forest case and Larry Warren left at Eastgate? Are you familiar with that? Uh, with that, Repeat that? stuff, uh, Larry Warren, the left at Eastgate, the Rendlesham Rendlesham Forest. Well, the Rendlesham Forest thing, uh, a little bit, just what I've heard, like what everybody else has heard, interviews and things. Yeah, uh, Larry Warren was a guy that uh, was a witness there. He's like 19 years old at the time. And his yeah. claim is that he was taken uh, for, down to a lower level of that base, an underground level of that base. And uh-huh. what they think ultimately happened was, to make a long story short, was that they dosed them up, these guys up with something to try to make them forget, forget or to try to just instill something into their minds. And there was yeah. a lot of uh, Peter Robbins, who, re- who wrote the book with him. We've had Peter on the show. Uh, he actually uh-huh. had a lot of encounters with the NSA when he was helping Larry write that book. So I think there's something to that. Yeah. You know, and, and the idea that these guys were doped up and, and messed with, uh, I, I would agree. I think it's probably uh, very possible that that was the case, but you know, I'm not going to call them liars. I think whatever right. their experience was is real you know, right. to them. And uh, or, or I, I'm not going to say to them. I think it was a real experience. I just think that it's very possible because um, we know the technology exists, it's very possible that their um, what they came away with, what they perceived it to be, what they understand it to be, was very much a manipulation of their, you know, of of their uh, psychological uh, uh, memory of it, you know, deep memory. Yeah. Well, Walter, uh, it's been excellent to have you back on. Real quick, where can everybody get the books? The book, books, and oh. also what's next for you? I hear that there's a rumored uh, next Secret Missions book coming. There is. Um, there will be Secret Missions 3 coming out later this year. Um, there will also be a an interesting follow-up to my Latitude 33 book ah. that I'm really excited about. Um, I'm in the research phase. Uh, the, the research phase for Secret Mission 3 began last year, but there's still quite a bit more to go. I really want that one to be something special. And, um, uh, you know, this other book, both these books will be out, you know, later this year. Um, you can get my books um, on Kindle at Amazon.com. I have an author page there. You can find all my books there. And also the printed version, if you prefer printed, at print on demand at Lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. And, um, yeah, I, I appreciate being on. It's always good to talk with you guys. And yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that people are interested in this stuff I do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It really is. It just, it gives you an alternate version of what you think you know. Right. That's how I was telling Adam, like, you know, we, we, we see a lot of different angles on this show, and this is something that I've never heard, and it's, yeah. it's incredibly fascinating to me. Oh, well, thank you. I, you know, that's, that's one of the things that, that, draws me to research these things. You know, when I write these books, any of my books, 
I don't set out to say, okay, uh, this topic is popular. I'll write a book on this topic because it's popular. Honestly, I, you know, my Boy Scouts honor, I don't do that. I honestly, sincerely write about things that, you know, a past book, you know, books research um, has led me or, or things I stumble upon. Um, right. You know, and, and this is, this is, I've been pulling threads since 2007. And my books are where those threads have, you know, legitimately led me. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I really appreciate when, when people uh, find them interesting. All started at Disneyland. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And yep. That was the first one. It's funny. I was listening to, uh, I was listening to one of our earlier shows with Adam go rightly. And he was talking about Disneyland stuff. And, uh, he asked on the show, actually, he asked, have you ever had Walter Bosley on? And I'm like, no. <laughs> so that was like show 18 or something. And now, now here you are episode, your, your third episode with us. So well, you've you joined the, epi- the, you've joined the, uh, episode, the, uh, three episode club now, sir. <laughs> oh, great. Is there like a, is there like a private lounge like Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin have for being Saturday Night Live? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's not that nice. <laughs> we have to come up with that sometime. <laughs> have a special bar and we wear silk jackets <laughs> or a kimono like rob has on right now so <laughs> all right walter stay on the line with us we're going to close out this segment guys we'll Ready? be back out to close this, we'll be right back to close the show on conspiranormal and we're bringing it back in on conspiranormal yeah we need to have like uh i was thinking what we should do is you need to do like make fun of like the actual radio and have like, you know, your wacky morning guys stuff, <laughs> like stupid sound effects. I think that would be really neat. What do you think? <laughs> just for the intro. Yeah. Like just to lead us back in. Or just like when Luke's not here, you know, you can have like some stupid sound effects, just like, <laughs> you know, prank call people on the road and piss them off. I don't know. Yeah. I was working on my, um, my cheesy radio DJ voice the other day, but it's so bad. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> And this is, oh, this is Rob from the morning show. <laughs> Wacky morning guys. <laughs> <Bah>. <laughs> All right. Well, that was Walter Bosley talking about his book origin. Uh, that was, uh, that was fascinating. We, we, we got into a lot there. I think my brain is a little tired and fried. Yeah. I've got so many things to look into now. Like I, yeah, it's, it's, and it's rare that a guest comes across it. It's a, topic that i've never even heard of a lot of times i don't know a lot of details about it or you know a lot of history or names or you know things associated with it but this is this one is just completely foreign to me i know um and a lot of it was foreign to me too when i first started when i first a lot of this he first started looking into was in the empire of the will series like he mentioned and it's especially from empire of the will part two Cause it all came to him from in the first book where he's talking about this guy that was taken into custody, uh, that was a suspect in this, in this murder that took place in San Bernardino in 1915. And you guys can listen to that. That was, uh, I think the first time we had Walter on was like back in April of last year. Uh, so, uh, you guys can listen to that show. We talked about Empire of the Will series, but. It was just this idea that this guy was uh, supposedly taken back into was was bailed out by friends from Sonora, 
And then this whole led Walter into this whole thing about the Sonora Aero Club and Charles Delshaw and who that was. And, you know, I, it, that kind of became, took on a whole life of its own in, in, in study that was kind of separate from the Empire of the Will stuff, in my opinion. Uh, the Delshaw stuff is fascinating. Just the, the 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 whole story there of just being found in somebody's house and like the weird pictures and trying to interpret what they're seeing and you know all this stuff is real all this stuff exists it's just like Walter said it's been it's been just declared to be just this weird art you know mm-hmm. and by and but that's interesting that these people have rich people in Texas have bought this stuff and kind of, kind of like hidden it away a little bit. Yeah. But that, you actually, that's actually in a book. I think there's a book that was published that you could actually buy that, that shows, uh, Dale Shell's quote unquote artwork. Huh. That kind of adds credibility to the whole thing. Just the fact that anyone yeah. would scoop that up and then hoard it. Right. And yeah, I mean that just it, the, the, the story in of itself is just, is just crazy. And it's like, as time goes on, we begin to see more and more of this stuff kind of come out. And there's there's a lot of people out there that are just kind of like uncovering the mystery of what happened. And to me, it's pretty fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. You know, if even if there is no breakaway situ- uh, civilization, even if it was just an invention that somebody did – and they just hid it away because they didn't, they didn't want the government to use it or they, they, they wanted to use it for themselves. I mean, even then, it's still – what a fascinating story that somebody would actually be flying something like that at the end of the 19th century. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, well, absolutely. And that's, that's why I want to go – maybe you know, though, like what, what kind of um, – Aside from balloons, did they have? I mean, when did zeppelins and stuff like that sort of appear? Uh, I want to say zeppelins came in the not too long after that. Uh, I want to say that it was probably 1899 or not even 1900 that the first zeppelins were flown. Um, of course, no, no actual airplanes. In other words, you know, heavier than air airplane uh, craft until the Wright brothers, 1903. Right. But uh, you, apparently the airships were not considered like zeppelins, uh, that they were not – they weren't balloons, that they ran on some other kind of technology. That's also fascinating. Right, right, right. Like the um, the, the Nazi bell. And- yeah. Yeah, this this whole idea. Now, as far as I know about the Nazi bell, it was like some kind of electromagnetic device. Well, and- that's what fascinates me too is uh, it involves – I mean just the Germans in general have been at the forefront of a lot of um, – you know, engineering, yeah, especially involving rocketry or astronautics and even acoustics, which comes into play a lot of times when you talk about anti-gravity stuff, strangely enough. Right. Uh, another interesting connection with all this has been these occult societies with these people that are proponents of these, of this kind of high technology. Find that utterly fascinating as well and what it, it makes me think of a little bit of uh jack parsons and uh you know he was a rocket engineer but he was also a serious occultist <laughs> hmm. so that's that that it, that's interesting to me as well uh well it's cold <laughs> and i think that uh we've got a long had a long enough show 
Uh, guys, we will be back in about a week and a half. Uh, well, probably less than a week and a half when this is actually posted. But we are going to have on Ron Filber, who is the – and I had this confirmed just a few days ago. Yeah, we're he's, excited about this one. He is the author of a book called The Mojave Incident. And uh, getting started in a reading the book, and apparently it is one of the most frightening accounts of alien abduction that has ever been described. And apparently it, it's a true story. So I'm real happy to have him on the show uh, coming up. And got a few cool surprises coming up in in February at the end of February and in March. Uh, one guest that scheduled today that I am extremely excited about, but uh, we'll save that for later. And uh, we'll let Luke take us out. Oh yeah, that's so right. Luke. Yeah, oh, <laughs> sorry. Well, yeah. darn. All right, guys. Hope everybody has a good evening or wherever you are in your car, morning, day, night whatever and uh don't let the flat earthers get you <laughs> we'll see you later on conspiranormal
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.